Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Today on the show, I speak with Brendan Burchard. Brendan is the world's leading high-performance coach and the author of the New York Times bestsellers, The Motivation Manifesto and High Performance Habits. Now, Brendan has produced over 20 blockbuster online courses, and his videos on personal development have been viewed hundreds of millions of times. Now, Brendan has recently launched Growth Day, a stunningly designed, multifaceted app that rolls up life-changing tools and top coaches into one app experience, and we'll get into the many dimensions of Growth Day. We'll also discuss the benefits of journaling and how a regular writing practice can produce emotional clarity and increase memory. We talk about habit creation and how to make beneficial practices second nature. And Brendan reveals findings from recent studies that outline the most prevalent habits of high-performing people. And we explore the characteristics of great leadership, the practice of decentralizing decision-making, and techniques for building empowered teams. And we talk about fear in all of its iterations and how to overcome it. Now, Brendan always brings high energy and good vibes, and this conversation is not an aberration. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Brendan Burchard. I'm ready. You're ready. Yeah. Brendan Burchard. Great to be go, with go, go. you. Uh, we've done it. Welcome to the Commune Podcast, man. Great to Thank see you. Thank you, brother. It's it's uh, it's exciting to be back. I remember. I think I was on the very, you know, one of the inaugural months of the podcast, filming at our place uh, together when we shot the Wellness Masterclass. It was it was so incredible. That's right. I remember the scene quite vividly, sitting upstairs uh, with the sun setting over the Columbia River. Yes, and um, and the room getting increasingly dimmer and darker as the sun was going down and our conversation becoming ever more intimate. Um, it was a great memory and uh, we'll try to live up to it today. 
Um, But anyways, before we jump in, I just, I have to express my gratitude to you just for being uh, just a loyal friend and just a big hearted supporter and always a sage guide. Um, And it's not just with me, you dispense your wisdom generously and always with effusiveness and ebullience. So (laughs) thank you for being you. (laughs) Thank you, brother. Uh, You too, man. And um, I was telling my producer that there might be extra uh, post-production in this particular episode because <laughs> you are so energetic. And, and my, <laughs> I get I, I could, You know, and, I'll and turn I on could, my mic right now. <laughs> and, uh, and my voice tends to, to gravitate to uh, an Eeyore-like drone. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> over a sexy time. lulling is what you have. It's, it's, okay. it's just a, a rhythmic wisdom that just makes me, you know, you you have the you have the ability and this is actually a, a genuine compliment you have the ability to help people find a a, a higher level of groundedness mm. which is i think a really difficult thing to to help people drop into the seat of their own wisdom um clearly you got that from your better half of uh, <laughs> everything yeah yeah it, it it is it is a it is a skill and i genuinely love and enjoy the podcast that you do because um, one, you're brilliant. And two, the spirit in which you do it is so clearly linked to your heart and service for others, which is rare. A lot of people do a podcast for podcasting for, you know, they think they need to do a podcast. You're actually opening up other realms for other people. And I think that's important. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I have made a conscious effort to try to create some kind of platform of sanity in a time that could be categorized as relatively insane <laughs> and <laughs> punctuated with a lot of outrage and anger and what I generally call amygdala hijack. So if my uh, sonorous droning, <laughs> um, it, it, you know, tends to, you know, take on some sometimes sort of a, a monotone flatline, it's really just to try to get people out of this uh, sympathetic overload and into their rational brains where we can use discernment and look at society's problems with a more critical eye and uh, try to solve some of these things through sane conversation. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but you do it more than that. It's not, it's not just getting in their head, it's getting in their heart because there's, there's viewing things through the critical eye and then there's viewing things through the critical plus compassionate eye. Hmm. And I think that's what we've, we've actually gotten a lot of people who are very, I think in the last 18 months, we witnessed a lot of the world attempting critical thinking, you know, they, they haven't had the training for it, but they're, you know, we have these people who literally don't know what's in their cereal box or what they slather on their body every single day or what they're drinking. But, you know, now they're MRNA experts and, you know, <laughs> and they're data scientists and they're like, yeah. but the data. So at least people are trying to understand science. So I think that the critical, it's been good for a little bit of critical thinking, but what's been yeah. lacking is the compassionate thinking that is both open to other people's experience and self-aware enough to explore what's truly right for oneself versus just following the herd or your political party or something else. So uh, you do a great job on that too, buddy. Yeah, thank you. Well, not to get too far off on on that thread, but yes, you're right. There are a lot of um, semi-professional molecular biologists out there, <laughs> which can which can be dangerous. Um, but I think you know what we've seen, which has been I think troubling and concerning to me, is this 
is that every issue gets kind of pitted in this kind of binary opposition. And there seems to be this climate of I'm right and you're wrong. And that's right. Um, and uh, I think, you know, to the degree that we can give each other a little bit of grace and have some humility yeah. and also understand that, you know, the knowledge we have is pretty much a speck on a pinhead, you know, um, where there's always a lot to learn. And if COVID has revealed anything, it's that. It's that, you know, nature is complicated and yeah. we don't know everything about everything every single day. So anyways, but you've been busy nonetheless over this time. Yeah. And I want to talk about that because uh, you've recently launched Growth Day. Um, and this is just uh, such a great project, um, ambitious project. This is beautifully designed multifunction app uh, that just has so many different features to it. I was poking around it this morning and I have it here for those of you seeing this on video. There's Jonathan Fields, our good friend, talking about friendship. And I saw you have Daniel Amen on there and so many brilliant thought leaders and experts uh, with courses. And there's a whole journaling component to it, which I think is fantastic. And I want to talk about uh, journaling and personal tracking and daily prompts and plan making and all of this kind of very personalized interactivity, um, just a wealth of information. And so uh, all, all in the service of, of doing what you do best, which is helping people reach their, their full potential. So congratulations on, on Liftoff. Thank you, <laughs> brother. It's been, it's been a, a lifelong dream, you know? It's funny, it's really been what my entire career is about, which is how do you, how do you help enable or empower people to make self-improvement a way of life? And for all these years, the way I was, you know, teaching personal development was, okay, well, I have a book here. I have online courses here. You know, I've got my podcast or my social media, and we have our live seminar events. Well, during COVID, they shut down seminars and conferences. So I started thinking, but th that immersive experience where we're doing all these things together, how, how do I bring that to life a little bit? You know, and I knew that Zoom wasn't going to be the ultimate answer for that. Yeah. And... You know, I also, after 20 years of studying personal development, neuroscience, philosophy, psychology, sociology, behavioral economics, it's pretty clear that people need three primary things to grow. They need the tools. First and foremost, they, they need tools. Now, not everyone would call it that, but we know that, for example, if you journal, you report 60% increase in your own self-awareness. People who journal have higher levels of life satisfaction, they have more confidence, they have more self-reported resiliency, and they also have socially reported their higher level, uh, higher rated managers and leaders because journaling is a, an act of self-awareness and openness. And so I was like, okay, that's a tool. A journal is a tool, right? Um, mm -hmm. So we also know when you score your habits over a period of time when you score your key habits, your, what we call your high performance habits, related to your levels of clarity or energy or productivity or influence or courage or sleep, movement, you know, nutrition, when you measure those things, well, you get better at them. Well, measuring them, that's, you need a tool to do that. You know? And so we, we, we started thinking, well, what are all the personal development tools that research has shown actually leads to higher levels of life satisfaction, confidence, income, sense of connectedness? So we teamed with a bunch of researchers from 
Universal University of um, Pennsylvania's positive psychology to you know UC Santa Barbara, trying to understand like what 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 are the right tools. So people need tools. The second thing they need is coaching. They need aspirational figures giving inspiration, life strategies, life wisdom. You know, just sharing of life philosophies and wisdom. So you're inspired. To, oh yeah, that's that that's what I should do. But also that interactive feedback of coaching that says, hey, I hear you saying this. Have you thought through that? Uh, and then they need community, which you're so expert at. They, 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 they need commune. They need a, a, a sense of community where they're connecting and sharing together. And I got really clear. If I build an app that brings the tools, coaching, and community specifically to the personal development industry and conversation, so for the strivers out there who know you want to go to another level of your potential, but you don't have a place to do that. You don't have a home to do that. It's like, welcome to your new home for personal development. That's what growth day is. It's like there, you need 10 apps to do what our one app does in personal development, let alone I brought the world's best personal development teachers into the app so that there's a live experience. You know, twice a week, there's a live coaching experience. And there's full-featured note-taking, full-featured journaling, habit scoring, and interactive community that just, I think, is going to take the, the game to another level. And, and uh, I'm really excited about it. But as you know, that's also all that I have done in my life for 18 months. Right. The, the whole the growth day was born during the pandemic because I was home. I was heads down. I was isolated. And I could build a, a virtual team worldwide who really got it and helped me build it. So it was a blessed time for me. Yeah, generally the gestation period for a baby is nine months. But in this particular case, you, you doubled it. <laughs> that what it. That's what it took. That's what it is. And then uh, you just take all your lifetime spending on the child and you, you, you also condense that into <laughs> the gestation <enough>. period. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it was uh, equivalent to uh, private college and, and then some. Um, so I, I think you, as you rightly say, I mean, the app compass, encompasses many of these topics that you've researched and, and written about for years. And I, I think uh, as a means of giving people some insight into the versatility of the app, I'd love to go into, you know, some topics in in some greater depth. And I'd love to start with journaling because you touched on it. And I wonder if you could share with us what your experience with journaling has been throughout your life and why it is so beneficial. Yeah, well, let's start with most people listening don't journal and they don't journal consistently. And, um, and I get why. And I wanted to solve that. I was like, why don't people journal? The, the, there's very few other pieces of literature in psychology, um, more highly rated and correlated and tested and peer reviewed than the impact of journaling. That, you know, we live in a world that knows it needs mental health and the simplest and the easiest tool to handle that, to improve that is journaling. I think everybody knows that like casually, but why don't people journal? And I'll tell you why. The same reason most people, 80% of the American public says, I want to write a book, and they never do. The reason is, when you open a page and it's blank, you don't know what to do. Yeah. And every day you face a blank page, it becomes discouraging. So here was a, a, a side benefit I had uh, and, and what brought me to this. I created this thing called the High Performance Planner years ago. 
And about a million people use it every day to plan their day. And what I did is on the left-hand side, I created these 10 morning prompts. You know, they're, they're not questions, they're actually starter sentences. They're, so they're more like sentence completion activities. And that became so popular. I mean, I get DMs literally every day by the thousands of like, here's my morning you know, prompts. And I thought, oh, well, I, that was something I really took for granted in, in, in the planner. I didn't think that was going to be one of the most popular parts of it. And I said, oh, well, what if we do that in the app? Instead of just a blank journal, we created a button that you would press and it would start a sentence for you in personal development to journal on. Hmm. And I said, what if we actually go do correlations on these sentences and correlate them to high performance habits, these different areas of their life that we can show progress to. And we came up with these hundred basically performance backed prompts. And then we broke them down. It's like, oh, well, what if you're gonna journal? What's your mindset if you're gonna journal it in the evening versus in the morning? So we have a morning prompts versus evening prompts. Then we have, okay, some people just wanna journal once a week. So we have your weekly review prompts. Some people are gonna journal once a month. We have your monthly review prompts. And so what happens is you can go into this digital journal, which is one of the most fully featured digital journal apps in the world already. And that's just one of our features in Growth Day app. So you go in there and now you can just start cold. You know, just if you're someone who journals, you can just start cold. Or if you're like, I don't journal, but if you gave me like a workshop, every day, gave me some prompts, I, I'd like, I'd fill it out. Yeah. And we're finding people are using those prompts and people who use the prompts actually stay longer in their habit. Their streaks of mm. multi-day journaling is higher because they're being prompted and they're being inspired to think about different areas of their life. It's incredible. And so I think we're going to help make self-help stick by making this journal really smart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is obviously a topic very close to my heart because over the last year and a half, I've done quite a bit of writing. And uh, for your writing you, game has gone to another level too, <laughs> man. Your, 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 your weekly, what do you call them, musings, I believe? Yeah. Oh, no, thank, thank you. So good. Uh, well, I just bring it up to say that I, I face a pa an empty page every week and I'm tasked with writing 2,500 words that, that, you know, are, somewhat you know meaningful and, and intelligible and it gets easier right because anything yes. that you do um anything that becomes a practice you know improves and so just the, the notion or the, the practice of journaling itself makes you a better writer yes but, but one thing that i really noticed specifically connected to this time to the pandemic which has been characterized by a lot of anxiety and fear and uh, other kinds of emotions is that words uh, can be the vessels for emotions. Yeah. It can be somewhere to put these complicated sensations that are arising and subsiding in consciousness that can feel chaotic. And by spending some time every day putting those feelings in a vessel yes it allows us to then share those words with other people and share our ideas and emotions such that we actually feel more connected and some and these 
levels of anxiety and fear, we realize A, that they're shared, and B, we can we can get our cognitive brains around them and talk about them. Um, and so that, that has been, uh, just in my direct experience, uh, one very important application for really spending time trying to clarify your thoughts in words. Yeah. You know, uh, research shows that's the exact same thing. You know, it's these three things in, 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 in research that it helps in mental health with journaling. One, it organizes your thoughts. And as soon as you organize your thoughts, you get a little bit more control over the mentor, mental chatter. So organization, just like if you ever feel kind of out of your control, if as you guys are listening to this, if you ever feel out of your control in your office or at your house, what do you do? You organize it. Hmm. You just, I, you know, I got to clean up the office today. And you don't yeah. even know why. It is a human <laughs> impulse to yeah. organize when there's a lot of chatter, noise, distraction, confusion, uncertainty. And so just the act, of organizing your mind literally helps you. The second thing, so organization is the first. Um, the second thing is the cathartic experience, which is what you're talking about. Journaling is a release of emotion through words and it's cathartic, it's release. And most people don't realize the incredible tension they carry in their mind and their body. Um, as you know, I, I teach this thing called the release meditation technique and people can watch it on YouTube, just type in release meditation technique. Like 2 million people have learned how to do this thing. It's crazy. Um, and it's just this idea that we have to release the thoughts in our head and release the tension in our body. And we need to practice for that. So I called it the release meditation technique and it took off, uh, which is not, I, I'm not an inventor of meditation by any means. I just wanted to give it a little bit of a goal because that's the way I think. Um, so what's interesting though, is that cathartic effect is real when you're journaling. People literally after journaling report feeling better not on a small scale, on a large scale. They're like, oh, okay. That's why even in, you know, even in classic therapy, if you're angry at someone, they tell you to write a letter and then immediately tear it up and throw it away. You're like, why would I do go through that? It's, you can literally <laughs> immediately tear up that letter and throw it away. Why? Because it was cathartic just writing it. So organize, you organize your thoughts, you're cathartic. And then the third one, which you shared, which I love, it, they call it perspective checking. The act of writing makes you think of, oh, how would other people perceive this? Which forces you to think through their point of view. Mm. So you mm. actually become a more holistic and connected thinker to others. The act of writing, as you said, it is a connective experience because you have to connect with the minds of others who might be reading this. And so it, it helps you consider other people's points of view. So for all those reason, reasons, journaling has been shown over and over in, in mental health studies and classic therapy and modern neuroscience and in good old fashioned personal development to be incredibly effective at making people feel better. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that more thorough analysis. I'm operating out of instinct a lot of time and, and without the, the, um, the background of a lot of the psychology that you have. Um, just as a product of my own personal direct experience, you know, what, what I do find is that if you, that, that people can really see their own story in yours. And yeah. we touched upon this just briefly in the preamble, you know, we're living in this moment of kind of binary opposition where every issue 
seems to push people to the opposite extremes and we can't talk to each other. And, you know, oftentimes, though, when we focus on story, it really uh, helps unveil this shared and common humanity that, that people have, you know, across, you know, political affiliations, religious affiliations, racial identities, et cetera. Um, so, so I think there is something really important in story and the utility of story to foster community and greater understanding. I also just think, and we'll get into habits and how habits are formed, but oftentimes I'll have an idea that I'm teasing out and, um, and I'll be coming at it from a bunch of different angles. But then when I sit down and codify and clarify those ideas on paper, I, it feels as though I am forming kind of new neural networks where many of those ideas then actually really get established. Yes. And I, I develop a degree of fluency with them and talking about them. And so in a way, I think the actual process of writing helps to develop these neural networks and solidify memory uh, and give us more fluency, um, you know, with all of the thoughts that, that seem to be appearing in, in awareness, uh, of which there are many day to day. Yeah, it does. It makes you, I mean, there's no question that, um, you know, even from academic research, when you write about a topic, you master the topic faster. You know, it's, yeah. it's a skill building activity as well. And also it's a creative activity as well. It's like, I, I don't know any major artist uh, that I've ever met in my life or studied who didn't diligently journal in some way or another, whether that was a sketch with some words um, or it was just reflecting uh, on life in a, in a philosophical way. It's just, it, it really does change your brain it really does help you in so many ways. And I am one of those guys who it, it really saved, I really believe my mental well-being in my 20s because I was just like way, you know, for people who are, I don't know how many people here are just like, I was that productive striver and I had high anxiety. Um, I didn't know it was anxiety. I, for me, it was drive. I thought I just had a lot of drive, but there was a tension to it that was unhealthy and my body and my mind started breaking down and learning to just quiet the mind with meditation and journaling, those two wonder punches together really changed things for me. And um, that's why when we built Growth Day, I said, you know what, we need to put every tool available in this thing so that people don't need to go, well, I love Growth Day, but I gotta go use this other journaling tool. Right. I mean, most people you know, in my industry, in either software or, you know, online would say, no, no, just do one, build one thing. I'm like, no, we're going to build the first all in one because that's what changed my life. I, I don't think personal development happens because you do one thing over here. It's like you make self-improvement a way of life. You make well-being a way of life. Commune isn't something that you, you, you guys talk about, just do this one habit yeah. over and over and over. It's kind of, it is very similar to, you know, the, the, you know, we we're all learning from the ancients already. It's like yoga wasn't just like, hey, do this one pose over and over. Yoga was a philosophy of life that also had lots of different activities related to it. And I think that modern personal development needs to adopt that and understand we need a life philosophy and we need life practices that are holistic and we can do on a continual basis. We can be reminded to do with these tools. I think apps 
can be a major distraction in our life. But if it's reminding us and prompting us and we receive push notifications that says, hey, did you journal today? Or hey, well, why don't you score your habits today or your, this week to see how you did this week? Uh, or hey, you know, um, looks like you know, these topics are important to you. We have a teacher coming up on that watch. I think those prompts, those little nudges, help us make self-improvement a daily touch point. And when we make any topic in personal development a, a daily touch point, that daily touch point is a gate that opens to greater self-awareness. And as we get greater self-awareness, we achieve a higher level of discernment of who we are and what's right for us. We become more intentional. Yeah. As we know who we are and what's right for us, we become more intentional. We, it's easier to build and stick to habits. And because we're more intentional and discerning, we end up becoming better people to our kids because we don't act out. We become better leaders because we don't act out in ways that aren't in alignment and congruence with the best of who we are. So that simple daily touch point in personal development opens that gate to self-awareness, changes our behaviors, improves our relationships, and changes our lives. And I just, it's, it's why I read personal development every day still. It's, this is my 25th year. I've read a personal development from, I've literally read personal development every morning for 25 years straight. I read a personal development book, psychology book, or leadership book every week for 25 years. I still wow. do it and people are like, why? I'm like, cause I'm not done growing. I'm getting better, baby. <laughs> okay, well, I, I'm, let's talk about habits for a moment because I read something I think on your Instagram page that I felt was just a very simple and beautiful encapsulation of this topic and then we can mine it a little bit more and I've got to put on my glasses to read it, so. Um, first, it is an intention, then a behavior, then a habit, then a practice, then a second nature, then it is simply who you are. So I think I heard Bruce, Bruce Lipton, or I read Bruce Lipton say once that 97% of everything that we do every day is subconscious, essentially below the crust of conscious behavior. Um, and most of this stuff is very quotidian, you know, it's like we're flipping the turn signal at the, at the stoplight. Um, but some of it isn't, some of it can, um, lead to, uh, insidious behavior that seems out of our control and, uh, that is inhibiting us from becoming our best self, from taking that extra risk, et cetera. Um, but Good news is over time, we can we can change the composition of our subconscious, and you know even the the field of, of neuroplasticity, you know revealed that the brain's ability to to modify and change and adapt its structure and function um, throughout life and in relation to experience. So that's the good news is that we can create new neural networks that can change our habits such that they become simply who you are. Yeah. Uh, and so I wonder if you could talk about that process of forming new habits. And I know that's a, that's a big well. Yeah, there. I think that's important. I, I always start with which habits should you form? If you're going to give the mental effort towards it and the discipline towards it, which habits? Um, as you know, I wrote a book called High Performance Habits. And um, we looked at all these different habits that re lead to 
long-term success, external measurements, positive relationships, people who had self-reported and socially reported more positive influence and relationships with others, and a sense of well-being, right? Mental health. And yeah. so we, we looked at, there was a hundred different ones that had like all this research behind it. We ran all these correlatives and we tried to figure out like, well, okay, which ones matter most? And it turned out there were about six habits that matter the most to long-term success, um, positive relationships and well-being. And in that research, it was like, oh, these are the six most important ones. And you, again, I'll just reference high-performance habits, not to go down that wormhole here. But then we had asked, well, how did people form these? And what I loved about it was none of those habits were what most people now talk about in all these other habit books that drive me crazy, which is, oh, you know, you should do things that are simple and that you, you know, that, be, that become automatic and they kind of miss that whole quote you're talking about. No, first it starts with an intention, then you do the behavior and you do the behavior. Then you make it a habit. Then you make it a practice. And a practice is it like, what I, the reason I just differentiate a habit and a practice, habit becomes somewhat automatic when they're simple. Practice, like I know your community is very big into yoga, it's not easy. <laughs> and that's what we call a deliberate habit. I, I'm tired of the personal development and especially the sociology um, and like the cheap and behavioral economics telling people to find the easiest habits to implement in their life because I'm like, those aren't the ones that actually change your life. It's okay that you're trying to do hard things. Guess what? Going to the gym is never going to be an automatic, easy habit for everybody. It's actually hard. It takes this weird called thing called willpower. You have to force yourself to do it. It is a practice. You don't want to go to yoga at 6 a.m., but that's your slot. You get in the dang car, you go there, you sweat it out, and you're proud of yourself. Like those are the habits. We call them deliberate habits. I'm not after the automatic habits in life. I'm after the deliberate habits because deliberate habits lead to growth. Mm. And the automatic ones are nice, but you know what? Anyone can change, you know, teach a chimpanzee, but fully conscious human beings, consciousness requires challenge. Growth requires challenge. I want you to pick deliberate habits. You're like, I'm going to pick one or two things that are hard. I'm going to do those. So I'm, I just want to start with that. The intention of, oh, I'm going to do things. They might be hard, but I'm going to make it part of my identity. That is something I'm going to focus on. I'm going to give myself clear intention. I'm going to do the thing. It starts with that intention and identity. For example, if you're a parent, like if you keep re overreacting to your children, over and over and over and over again, you, you'll just stay, you'll keep doing that until someday in your mind, you go, you know what? I am not a parent who does that anymore. You start with the intention of identity. I'm going to be a parent who doesn't hit my kids in that moment. I'm going to be a parent who doesn't freak out and scream and make the situation worse. I'm going to, that is my intention. I'm going to do that. And then you do it once. You fight the, re, you, you resist, you, 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 you resist that impulsive habit. Resisting impulsive habits is a huge conversation that no one has in mm. personal development for some reason. I'm like, yeah. and so, does, so does easy psychology. I'm like, no, no, resist that awful part of you. It's like, you have to have, how do you do that? You start with the intention. Yeah. So then you, you have the behavior. You don't, you don't freak out on the kids. Great. Good job. That was, that was one time. Now force yourself to do it several times. Make it a practice, make it a practice, make it a practice. And over time, now it's not that the habit becomes auto, you know, automatic and easy every time. It just becomes, oh, I became that parent 
who doesn't overreact every single time. It doesn't mean you're perfect. Mm. But what I'm, what I'm here suggesting here, if you look in that quote, and the reason that, that by the way, that quote I wrote in 2008, it's been shared a billion <laughs> times on the internet. I had no idea. Um, a billion. I was like, wow, yeah. I haven't done anything that, that's, that's like that? You, you, it's one of those <laughs> things you're like, well, that was, you know, I think I've done all these things. They're like, that was the thing? But guess what? Uh, what most people miss is that last part, which I love how you read it. Then it's simply who you are. When you're thinking about habit forming, this is my suggestion to everyone. When you're thinking about habit forming, first, don't go for the easy stuff. Be deliberate. Challenge yourself. Second, it's not about creating automatic habits. It's an act of becoming. Soon as you get away from this pop psychology, I need to do the little tiny habits that lead to perfection, you know, no, no. actually, we're not looking for automatic. We're looking to evolve and grow. It, I am in an act of becoming, not trying to create easy things, not trying to create, you know, simple, uh, and by the way, I know I, I, I always get crushed when I teach this because you know, people come out and say, no, but there's all this research of the simple first act. I'm like, yes. And the book ends and, and you do the tiny little thing and that's great and you feel okay about it. But it's the deliberate practices, the one that took real discipline and willpower to do that shifts you into becoming the higher version of yourself that we're all really after. We are all in a process of becoming something more. Let's have intention about that and be willing to do the hard work to get there. Mm, I love that, Brendan. So well said. Yeah, and this is what we are striving for, this authentic life of integrity, which I have uh, come to understand as uh, living in alignment with your highest principles. Yes. And this is aspirational. I'm not sure we ever get there 100%. That's right. Um, and and you, know, you, you use that example of, you know, a parent getting uh, mad at their children or in some cases resorting to corporal punishment and being like caught up in the emotion of the moment um, and the ability to cultivate the, uh, the capacity to, um, to resist. And, you know, um, you know, Viktor Frankl has this great quote about our liberation is, you know, finding that space between stimuli and response and inside that space is, you know, this is where our freedom is. And, and a lot of that comes uh, down to mindfulness or meditation practice where you can actually witness yourself mm. and your behaviors um, as if you were floating above yourself. Um, and, you know, when you're sitting in meditation and you're becoming the kind of witness of phenomenon arising and subsiding moment to moment, thoughts and sensations and, and feelings and, you know, being able to w witness them and perceive them without fixating and connecting and, and identifying with them, you begin to develop this capacity where you can almost witness yourself within daily life and you're creating that space that allows you to resist um, and from there um, you know you can uh, I think have a, a clearer path to developing some of these deliberate habits and I, I love that framing that framing is so good <laughs> so thank, thank you, you man thank I you agree with that, that. And I love your word of, of, of even of, of integrity there like in, integrity is not easy and I think we came into we came into a culture where everything's supposed to be easy or we don't do it. 
And in fact, I think that's why we've gotten, you know, a, 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 a not, I don't want to use the word soft because I think that's super judgmental, but I think it's, we've gotten resistance to doing the very hard things that make us such better persons. And, you know, at the beginning of things, often, you know, it is like, oh, in, in that situation with your children, you, 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 you have to resist that urge to do something you know you shouldn't do. But over time, the act of becoming is now, instead of having to resist those quote unquote lower impulses or those automatic impulses, the beauty is now the resistant, like the, the need to resist isn't the forefront. Now what is happening is an alignment with what you said, your highest principles. It becomes easier to align with your highest principles and the resistant, it's like resist bad things, stage one. Align higher principles, stage two. You know? <laughs> yes. It's like yes. throw out all the crap in the pantry first and then start eating the good stuff. You know what I mean? It's like there's that act of removing what is the, you know, what you're pulling your foot off the brake of the bad things before you hit the accelerant of the alignment with the higher principles. And, and so I think that's a simple thing everyone could go in their growth day app right now and journal on is just like, oh, what are the things I know I need to resist doing because they're not in alignment? with who I want to become. Yes, yes. And of course, this is protein. I mean, you can apply these lessons to myriad components of your life, like leadership, for example. And you've done so much research and considerable field work in, in the area of leadership. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, I have been a CEO for 20 years in, in various different companies, and I've had to learn in some ways, the hard way. Um, and, uh, and it's only been, I think, in the last, you know, five years when I've really spent more time um, cultivating what I would call the, the better angels of leadership, um, that I've become a more effective leader. And, and subsequently, the entities that I've led have become more effective. And, um, you know, so we have, I think, you know, leaders have been in some ways, in, inculcated into this antiquity, uh, antiquated sort of vision of sort of patriarchal leadership as a kind of chest-thumping, charismatic monarch who knows the answers to every question and will pilot us into victory. <laughs> um, but there, but there is a, another way. I think when you cultivate that space. And Lao Tzu talks about this in the Tao, for example. Uh, I think he says something like, you know, um, uh, when the master doesn't talk, he acts. And right. when his work is done, the people say, amazing, we did it all by ourselves. Right. <laughs> it's sort of the, the leader almost just disappears. And, and all he has to do or she has to do is hold the space. So I wonder if you could get into some of the characteristics of great leadership, because I, I know that's something that you talk about often and, and also will be uh, a part of uh, Growth Day. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. And I, lo I love you brought up Lao Tzu because um, I would say my, my own personal philosophy was formed from spiritual texts, which is more of the, the philosophy of like walking side by side in wisdom. Mm -hmm. And then you know, whether it's Jesus walking side by side or the Buddha being participative in the conversation, I think is important. And then I think of, oh, well, in, in, in practice to what you're talking about, both Lao Tzu and um, more like a modern take on that was James McGregor Burns and, and others 
um, or Robert Greenleaf, especially who popularized the term servant leadership, is that leaders are servants first, that they, they, they lead with or from behind more than like pointing and, you know, jabbing others with the carrot and the stick, which became very popular only in the later 40s, 50s and 60s. Um, prior to that, it was a more participative um, approach, believe it or not, like worldwide, definitely not in Western culture in the US, but worldwide. Um, but what I've really learned is I, I can boil down great leadership into five words. It's a simple phrase. Uh, you know, I, I, some, some folks know I, I did my master's work on leadership and organizational leadership. Um, my first big, how I entered the creator expert influencer space was I wrote a book called Student Leadership Guide, which became the biggest book in, in colleges and high schools in the world for leadership at the time, um, which I had no idea was going to happen. So I kind of lucked out on that part because um, I actually wrote the Student Leadership Guide and left it to the University of Montana in a binder and a very <laughs> enterprising um, student life leadership coordinator printed it out and started handing it out at both on campus, but then at, at conferences. And then I started getting these emails for people saying, hey, we have your book. We love it. Would you come speak? I'm like, what book? <laughs> it was my <laughs> master's thesis. I had no idea. Anyway, funny story there. <laughs> but a little bit of the unintentional leader for sure. But the, the, the lessons I've learned from then until now, having literally taught this to tens of millions of people, is leadership is five words. And it's this phrase. People support what they create. People support what they create. Great leadership is you get other people to collaborate and envision the future together. And when they feel like they're part of that mission or that vision, when it is participative and collaborative, now their ideas are in it. When their ideas are in it, they got skin in the game. When their yes. identity is in it, because their ideas and their personal commitments, their skin in the game is in it, then they themselves want to lead. They have ownership. An entire leader's job is how do I inspire ownership and community toward this vision? And it begins with this philosophy of, oh, people support the way they create. How do I empower a conversation or a process in which we come together it doesn't mean that the, oh, Brennan, you're telling me all my employees decide exactly where I go. I'm like, no. But if they don't have a voice in it, they're not engaged in it. If they're not engaged in it, they don't work for it. If they don't work for it, you suck. <laughs> so <laughs> let's just get out of the heart of it, man. You want to be effective? You yeah. have to learn how to collaborate. You have to start with the intention that people are going to support what they create. This is going to be an environment where people are going to have a voice. They're going to have safety to express that voice. They're going to have a, uh, a sense of, collaboration in the culture and they're going to have a sense of ownership because they're going to know if it's working well or not. We're going to be clear about whether or not we're moving towards the vision. And I think that when leaders get that, it's a total shift in how they build community, vision, safety, culture, and ultimately progress. Mm, yes. Um, and I'll tie it in to uh, some of the other topics that we've touched on also, because I think number one of the 
habits of, of highly productive people or high performers was seeking clarity. And if I combine seeking clarity with journaling or writing, what you do is you, you get really super uh, focused on your mission and your vision there. And, you know, you make your idea the dream of others through clarity, through that clarity. Now, making your idea the dream of others can also be dangerous if it's used for uh, bad intents, but it can be very, very powerful uh, in, in, a, in a more beautiful, as part of a more beautiful vision. And, yeah. and I think what's beautiful there too is the difference between an idea and a vision, which is hmm. important in leadership because a, a, a lot of, there, there is that myth that that soul lone warrior comes up with the idea, the bright shining example and we're all going to march towards that thing and in, in, in actual process, like when we study leadership in the real world, what ends up happening is, yeah, usually a person is an originator of an idea. And then what they do is they go beat up that idea in conversation with four or five other people and it clarifies and the clarity. Da, 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 and then it's like, oh, wow. Oh, that's the thing. Got it. That's the thing. Yes. And often the person who then you know stumbles upon that thing or espouses the thing the most, they're like, oh, well, that's the leader. But if you talk to any real leader, they're like, how'd you come up with that idea? And I yeah. love asking people, how'd you come up with that idea? They always break it. They're like, oh, this thing happened. Then I talked with that person. And then I talked with this person. And this, and we landed on this. And so I went forward with that. And so that's what yeah. usually happens. It's more collaborative process than most people um, would reveal at first. Absolutely. It's almost applying evolutionary biology to ideas yeah. that simply under the pressure of selection that involves a multiplicity of, of inputs, you get that. the best idea. That's right? real. Um, and this is why I, I always encourage leaders to really have a, a multiplicity of, of people at the table um, when an idea is being gestated, because it is that multiplicity of different viewpoints um, and that those viewpoints may be anchored in, you know, different, indigenous traditions or cultural trends traditions etc so for me obviously we're it is paramount to have diversity uh in our teams for a million reasons but one of the top reasons is that that's where the best ideas come from is <laughs> it's, it's, it's through the pressure of selection through a multiplicity of ideas i'm with you man I, I, I'm totally with you. I, a huge opening for me came during the pandemic and during the riots um, after George Floyd's murder. And um, I was already in a, in a very big thoughtful space about where my platform needed to be and where it went. And, you know, it, it's a funny thing. If you look online, like my social media has always just been my, it's a collection of my writing. Like all my social media is a collection of my writing and teaching. I don't have other people on it, never have. I mean, my, my Facebook page was, has like 5 million fans on it. That actually began as a community site. Someone started it and got it up to like 400,000. They're like, hey, we put all your writing here. And they handed the keys over to me one day. I was like, oh my gosh. And so I just kept it going. And so all my social media, is just, it's, it's like a library of all my stuff. But when that became millions and millions of people, I was like, wow, I got to do something with that. Um, someday, maybe not on those platforms because people subscribe for that stuff. But I thought, well, I have access to this audience. And if you ever came to my live events, uh, 
I always had diversity in all my speakers since 2009, my first seminar. So it was always very important to me, especially to have, you know, underrepresented teachers on my stages. So if you ever came to my stages, it's like, oh, wow. You know, first you notice 70% of my audiences were always women in personal development and seminar world, which is not the norm back in the day at all. Um, right. But then you also, it's 40% international students who from all walks of life. Well, that happened in my live seminars, but it wasn't happening online. So when I decided um, to start Growth Day, the first thing was, how do we bring in other voices and how do we make Growth Day not just my teaching? Hmm. How do we make it other people? So, you know, first calls out were some of my favorite teachers in, you know, from all walks of life who I learned from and who I loved. And we made Growth Day immediately feel like, oh, wow, look, there's, there's women who are teaching. There's people from the black community teaching. There's people who, you know, have completely different diverse backgrounds than quote unquote traditional personal development or quote unquote motivational speakers, right? It's like, oh, I, I partnered with you. I'm like, hey, how can we find some of the, you know, commune's best teachers and can we bring them into the platform as well? Um, and some of their, their content. And that was just, it was trying to say, let's be intentional. Whatever you all are building, how can you bring in other voices? And it was a real active and strategic effort. And, and, you know, I recognize my points of privilege by and far, you know, it doesn't matter how or where I grew up. I grew up in a system, you know, and I'm a white guy and I had to be attentive. Like, oh, I have this choice to build this new thing. When I build it, how do I make sure there's other voices in there? And I loved, I honestly, here's the crazy thing. Everyone's so fearful of that process. I loved it. I learned so yeah. much. I'm learning now. There's some of my favorite teachers in there, like Koya Webb, who, you know, Koya is also a commune teacher. She teaches on a growth day. I love her sessions. They fire me up. We have Gloria Tonmo or Anthony Trucks or, you know, so, so many people from different backgrounds and perspectives. When I learn from them, I'm like, I'm fired up. So I'm hoping to do that in personal development just as, as you've, honestly, you did, you and Skylar did far and long time before I did. So I, I learned from you about that. And I'm inspired by it. Well, yeah. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, obviously, just I grew up overseas in all sorts of different uh, social milieus and, you know, just going into a new country with a new language in a new school as a young boy, feeling like the outsider trying to belong. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, that has colored my whole life and my whole desire to create community. So, you know, a lot of these things are just uh, reflections of our own personal experience, but there's always, you know, ways for us to improve in this regard. And uh, just to bookend some of the conversation on leadership. Um, you know, one of the things that I have found over kind of my tenures as, as CEOs of various companies is that when I can develop clarity around the vision uh, such that there, that people can develop mission fluency very simply and easily. And when people are fluent with a mission and a culture, that gives them a lens through which to make decisions within that culture and within that community. And when people have a lens, you can let go 
and the decision making becomes decentralized and and then what that engenders is a culture of trust and a culture of empowerment where people feel free to you know make mistakes and apologize later and know that they're going to be supported and see a bigger future within the organization for themselves and that leads to less turnover, which leads to institutional knowledge being created within an entity. So the, so, and I can't tell you what a relief it is to not have to make all the decisions. In fact, the less decisions you can make as a leader, sometimes that's the better. Yeah. You know, you can lead like the ocean, know that all of the streams and tributaries and creeks and rivers flow into you. You don't have to flow. Uh, it doesn't have to flow the other direction. And, you know, this was a long learning experience for me to not always think that, you know, I was the smartest guy in the room and, you know, that, that I always had the answers and really to let go. But before you let go, you've got to be, got to make, develop that clarity and that mission fluency. Yeah, it's so key. Yeah. Um, I, I think of, uh, I, I had the blessing of um, spending uh, significant interviews with uh, George W. Bush, as well as Bill Clinton. And mm. uh, both the presidents had a very different approach to high performance, for sure. And one thing I remember George Bush telling me uh, was his surprise, he had to repeat everything over and over. He had like several things. He just had to repeat over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. That was leadership, you know? And uh, <laughs> sometimes, you know, I tell corporate leaders, you get three initiatives here and you're going to talk about those three initiatives over and over and over and over again. You're going to set some OKRs, objectives and key results underneath that. But the people are going to take it from there. They're going to set the priorities. They're going to do the work. They're going to figure out the how, and uh, that's going to be part of your life. And that's kind of what that leadership is at those highest levels. But also, it really depends on your own. Sometimes you got to know your own style and meet the culture where it is um, and your leadership team where it is. I'll give you an example. Um, one of my favorite questions I asked both Clinton and Bush. So please don't anyone attack me for politics. Um, an interesting study just came out actually uh, yesterday. Uh, I was reading that in the 50s and 60s, when people were asked about the other side, in America, that might be Democrats versus Republicans. Um, you know, their their sense of negative feeling towards the other persons were were literally at about twenty percent. Now they're at sixty eight percent. That's amazing to see that change in four six decades. Right, most of that though was actually the last two decades, which is really crazy. Then they also asked this question: Would you? Be comfortable with your child marrying someone of the quote unquote other party. And in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, everyone's, most people were like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, the vast majority. Now, 52% are uncomfortable with their child marrying someone of another party. And you just think, wow, just. This is how sad that is in so many ways. But um, so I, I'm bringing up both Bush and Clinton just for the record. <laughs> you don't like one or the other. Okay. Yeah. But here's what I learned from them. And one of my favorite parts of asking questions was I asked them both. I said, so you wake up in the morning. You know, you get your slippers on. You, I'm sure there's some fancy robe you wear. <laughs> and, but there's a moment you're going to open up a door 
And on some door, there's the team. And, and, and you know, they probably have a book or something. And I'd already studied presidents, so I knew this is actual real. By the way, presidents begin their morning. They get, they get this dossier, this book. And I said, so um, when you look at that agenda for the day, how much of that on that piece of paper, how much of that did you put on there? Like that was your will, your intent. That was your, your uh, administration's agenda versus how much it just ends up on there because you're the president and the decision can't be made anywhere else. The, the, the people can probably guess how that turned out. Bush was like, oh, it's just there. I mean, if you're the president, it just, I mean, most of your job is just handling that stuff. Clinton was like, oh, most of that, I, you know, a vast majority, that's, we're driving our agenda. So they had two very different things, but they were also meeting their leadership teams, the culture and the administration and the vision in, in that way. Now, it didn't mean that Bush can't be a hard driving agenda person. It just meant for where he was at at that time, that was his, his leadership prerogative. And I say that too, because what people need to hear is, I promise as I was saying that people made a judgment in those last six or seven sentences. And the reality is both those people who I, I've known later, their leadership prerogative changes. Just like we don't need to have a fixed mindset about who we are and what we're capable of in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. People, leaders need to understand that you adapt, you learn, you grow. The way I led my, like the Brendan companies, if you will, is very different than the style and the approach I'm taking with growth day. That you're not a monolithic leader. You, you're going to change. You're going to adapt. You're going to be flexible. The, the team, there, there's points in your team's time where you have to be very command and control because they don't know what the hell they're doing. That's just real. And you've done it before. So you've got to sit side by side. You've got to train and scale them up, get them ready, help them understand context and, and micromanage some of those goals and, 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 and systems and tools and approach at one stage. And then as the organization develops a little bit more, you, 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 you loosen the reins more and more and more and more over a period of time. And I think that's important to understand is like leadership. That's why I always say you can't judge political leaders, you know, in a one year context or in a two year context, uh, because so, so much is happening that you don't see. And they're going to have to adjust. Unfortunately, most don't. And so uh, this is why I'm making this point is too many people get stuck in I'm a leader like this versus what is required of me. Hmm. Let me adapt. Let me serve. I think that's one reason most people actually fail to reach their full potential in their life is they're saying, what's easy for me and what's my style? The reason I hate the strengths finder movement stuff is because people are going, oh, that's how I am. I guess I'll do it like that or interact like that. And that's how I, or Enneagram or whatever. All these things, like personality tests have been debunked for 30 decades. I'm sorry, three decades. Uh, so clearly that they don't correlate with long-term success in any measure whatsoever. But we all think we have to do our style of our Enneagram or our horoscope or whatever. No, the, the reality of all of it is that we have to, adapt ourselves to serve. And the reason most people don't reach their potential is they think I am like this versus saying, what's required of me? 
let me grow into what's required of me. So people go, people tell me all the time, Jeff, they go, I want to be a millionaire like you. I go, okay, well, the answer isn't, I don't talk about what their strengths are at that moment because they're, they're not yet there. Instead, it's like, okay, what would be required of you? I'll give you my last example and I'll shut up on this one. It's for me, I wanted to make sure my writing got out into the world. Now, believe it or not, as people watch this, this video here or listen to us, on all the assessments, including Myers-Briggs, I'm right down the line between introvert and extrovert. It's hard to be a person who's on stage without being an extrovert, but it's also hard to write six books without being an introvert. So I'm right down the line. To get my writing out in the world, if I, if I had stayed with how Brendan was or how I felt comfortable, I would have never reached the people I did. Instead, I said, what is required for me to learn to get to have the opportunity to have my message in front of people? You know what I'm going to have to learn? I'm going to have to learn to communicate. I'm going to have to learn to give public speeches. I'm going to have to learn to get comfortable on video. I'm going to have to learn all these new ways of communicating, whether it's social media or podcasts or everything else. I was not that quote unquote guy. I was terribly frightened from public speaking. Now I lead five day seminars where I'm on stage for nine hours. I do the second longest show in all of my industry and have done it for eight years. Like it, it, that was not me. I asked what's required to make my impact in the world. What's required. I'm going to have to learn communication. I'm going to have to learn leadership. I'm going to have to learn to take better care of my health. I'm going to have to learn to master my mind when it goes squirrely on me. I'm going to have to learn nutrition. So I have the energy required to lead. I became what was required to have that result. Hmm. And I think that's what's important for leaders. Don't just do your style because that's your style. No, in that context, in that organization, in that company, with that specific team, with those specific goals, who must you become to crush it? Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I mean, that requires... A lot of humility, actually. Yeah, I suck at so many things. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, you have to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, oh, well, I think I'm best at this, but that's not what this situation requires of me. Yeah. And I think you can really, you can see this come into starker relief, like on, on, uh, on the athletic field, for example, like where you look at a guy like Tom Brady or something, who's obviously been incredibly successful and he could just be up there and say like, Oh, I know I'm the guy that throws 50 touchdown passes every year. I'm just going to keep throwing bombs. You know, that's the way I win because that's who I am. But that's not why he's been successful. He knows every once in a while that he is, can, he is assesses his environment assesses the situation that he is in. And then he's like, I'm just going to run the ball up the middle <laughs> for the next 10 plays or whatever. Uh, but, but obviously it's a little more subtle when you're talking about emotional intelligence inside a, a community group or inside a, of a business or a corporation. And so, yeah, I, I love, um, I love how you laid that out. Yeah. Too. You have to ask yourself like as a leader, what are you trying to do here? Well, I promise what you're probably trying to do there is empower others. And to do that, you're going to have to learn some new skills because you might not know how to empower others. You might not know how to, for example, I also didn't know how to have hard conflict oriented questions. I'm sorry, conversations. Yeah. I, you know, it's like giving difficult feedback was not my super strength. 
So I read like yeah. 10 books on it. I got a coach on it. And now I'm, I'm literally, I'm awesome at it. I look forward to those conversations. They don't bug me at all. At the beginning, they made me want to die. And so it's like, but that's what's required of you. Like we have to teach our culture again. It's okay that you're not good at these things. Skill up, skill up. And what we have to teach people is and the reason, and by the way, everyone knows that, but they stop. And the reason they stop is because, as you said, the, the, the demands of, re, of humility, what people do is they don't get good results and they get discouraged. And I would say, oh, let me give you the greatest gift ever. You don't have to be discouraged anymore. Like I haven't felt discouraged in 20 years and I suck at everything every day. And here's why. The second you adopt a learning mindset, discouragement goes away and discernment replaces it. Mm. And that has changed my life. I, I fail all the time. I'm a, I'm a marketer, right? I, I do so much marketing to build my writing and my coaching and my businesses. I mean, that's why they have A-B split tests. Like we, we're testing all the time. Every day I get 50 results back that says that sucked, that didn't work. And instead of me going, oh, I, uh, people don't like me. I go, oh, let's, let's shift it. Let's change it. Let's adapt. Let's learn. And that learning enthusiasm is so required for a long-term high quality life. If you get discouraged when you learn something you don't like, then life's gonna be real hard. So just fall in love with that learning process and don't get discouraged. You're like, oh, I learned this about myself. I learned this about them. I learned this about this event, this thing, the situation and journal about it so that you organize it. <laughs> you learn to release it and you check perspectives. You do that over and over and over and over again. And suddenly you get real good at progress. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that was interesting to hear you, you say that you used to have a lot of anxiety around public speaking, for example. And um, I don't want to just probe at one last topic, which could, I suppose, generally be categorized under the aegis of fear. Um, I mean, we, we talk a lot about fear as this kind of fundamentally deeply wired reaction, you know, to protect humans against perceived threat, you know, but obviously, you and I are rarely getting uh, attacked by rhinoceri on the Serengeti. Right. Uh, I suppose some people are, but most of um, the fear that we're managing in modern life is psychological fear. And I think it's fair to say that sometimes that fear has its roots in real trauma. Uh, but oftentimes, a fear is a fantasy of our own projection, really. We're, we're fearing judgment. We're feeling fearing failure, change. I mean, to be honest, I even look at myself critically. Sometimes I even fear success, which yeah. is a little kooky. Um, and a lot of this fear really inhibits us from taking risk and from reaching our potential. So maybe you could talk a little bit about mindset and how we can manage and, and overcome some of these anxieties and fears in service of you know, reaching our full potential. Yeah, I think one is to, to recognize, yeah, it is, it is a physical impulse that we tend to have. Um, that's, by the way, the definition of emotions. So emotions tend to be automatic, impulsive, and physical. They, they instantly happen to us. Um, and for most people, what fear really is, is emotional discomfort. It's actually not fear. So if we define fear as that physical threat, okay, that's one, that's a reaction level. But most people are dealing with like 
you know, subtle levels of emotional discomfort, like, uh, I don't, I'm worried about that. That bothers me. I have stress and anxiety about that. Um, but I don't need to run and protect my bones. You know? right. yeah. So I think, I think it's always good to like, just have a little bit of, of humor about your own fear and discomfort. I laugh at myself all the time. I'm like, oh, that's funny. That freaked me out. Because later on, <laughs> I think everyone's driven a car before and something freaked them out and they were freaked out for 10 minutes. And then later they were describing to a friend, they're like, I don't know why I freaked out so much. It's not such a big deal because emotions also come and go, they pass. So that's a good thing. We also have the ability to direct those emotions though over a period of time and make them less automatic. That's where meditation and journaling really helps. Um, and then also most of those fears are intellectualized to your point, it's thinking. I'm stuck on this thinking pattern. The thinking pattern in fear specifically is, um, what if followed by a negative statement? Yeah. All fear can be elevated, like literally, I'm not elevated, broken down to that level. What if followed by a negative statement? Your job when you feel that sense or that worry is like, fill in that blank. What if what? What is the worry or the fear you're having? Well, what if they think I'm stupid? What if they don't like this? And the good news is we only fear four things. We all fear ruin. Oh, I'm, I'm in a ru I'll be ruined. My reputation will be ruined. My business will be ruined. And, and so that's called catastrophizing. We all fear rejection. They won't like me. I won't have a place. I won't, that's, you know, a fear of belonging, more or less. Like I'm out, I'll be alone, ostracized, abandoned, you know? We all fear that idea of what you were talking about, responsibility. And responsibility means it'll be too hard. It will require me to compromise. And I won't like that. And we all fear disproportionate risk where the outcome could be worse. And so we blow up the outcome as being, you know, severely worse or ruinous. And so it, once we know, oh, that's what fear is. Now it's intellectualized a little bit like, oh, wow, I, I'm catastrophizing here. Oh, I'm just worried I won't belong. Oh, I'm, I'm worried it won't turn out well. Oh, I'm worried I won't be able to handle it. And once you realize those are the four primary driving factors of intellectual or what is modern fear, it's like, oh, it always comes down to those four things. Now you know those four things. Now you recognize it, you see it, you journal on it, and you can release it. Or when it comes up, because emotions do come up. Like I still feel, even though I, I literally teach that, I know that. I've done the most <laughs> crazy things in my life to overcome all sorts of fears. Those still come, those are automatic, yeah. physicalized feelings. That, that, that's what emotions are. It's, it's like literally automatic, impulsive, and physical. And so what happens is you get comfortable with them. You go, got it. That's that old hat. That's what's happening. It's kind of like when you hear an old song that you love and you immediately feel good, you, you can intellectualize, you go, oh, that's what's happening. That song is playing and I love it because that's what they played at my wedding. I feel good. Right. You can break it down. Now your job is to break down what happened in the past and figure it out. One of the things I love that you have done, and I think it's important that everybody who's listening today, you log into your commune app and you watch Byron Katie's course on the work. You learn how to flip thoughts. And once you learn how to flip thoughts, you can really take over your, your emotions, including those of fear or anxiety. And life feels a whole much, a whole lot better. Yeah. And so often, I mean, it's helpful to understand that the fear is actually being experienced in here. Yeah. Like I, 
woke up, I remember about six months ago, and there was a skunk in my bedroom. And wow. I woke up and I jumped out of bed and I said, oh my God. And, and I was freaked out. There's a skunk in my bed. I, I go to Skylar. I shook her up. There's a skunk in here. And she got up. She's like, what are you talking about? And then I looked up and I, looked, I turned the light on and it was our cat. You know? And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's just our cat. And this <laughs> is a silly example. But that the fear didn't it just existed as a fantasy of, of, of a projection in my head. That's right. And, and oftentimes the energy um, around anxiety is uh, the sensation itself. If you were to actually witness the sensation without assigning any valence to it, the sensation around being really excited and being very anxious is almost the same thing. It's like you can have this feeling about around, you know, I'm just about to jump on stage. And it's a, and a sensation, excitement of, uh, that's welling up in your body somatically, yes. as you say. And you can assign that a valence of positive or negative. And so oftentimes it's really our ability to, again, cultivate that capacity to witness the nature of the sensation, and then either don't label it at all and just enjoy as it's coming up. And you're like, there's that old friend. You know, Rumi has that great poem of, of emotions, you know, um, uh, coming in like guests to a party or uninvited guests and, yes. and, and coming in and just leaving. But you're the house, you know? <laughs> um, it's very similar of, 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 you know, it, it, it coming up and, you know, because it is, most emotions are, are physicalized. And I know when people hear me say, well, you, now you're just intellectualizing it into ruin and rejection and responsibility and risk. It's like, okay, I, I got it. But knowing that the fear is experienced in the body, even though it's, you know, labeled in the brain, it's like, okay, let's, let's honor that. And, you know, mental health practitioners, specifically therapists, have found who do research in uh, modern therapy for emotions, like Barbara Fredrickson's and others, what you find is really an emotion comes and passes in 90 seconds to 120 seconds. That's kind of mm -hmm. like the range where almost all it comes in, but almost it always dissipates then. Your job is not to never have it again. I'm not about the obliteration of any emotion. What I'm about is making sure that you're not slave to them. And so when it happens, First, it's like, I always tell people, it's three steps. No matter what the emotion is, if it's discomfort, first step, I need you to breathe for 120 seconds. I need two minutes of breathing. No reaction, no labeling, just dance with it, move with it, and breathe with it. You got two minutes. Because here's the deal. If you don't take the two minutes to dance and breathe with it, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to have a crappy next two hours. So you got two minutes. People say, I don't have time. You got two minutes to breathe. I need to take 10 deep. What I do is I stand, I bounce in place and take 10 deep breaths. Then I sit, I do some box breathing. I just calm myself, just quick, literally 90 seconds, 120 seconds. I'm good. So that's search, breathe. Number two, set intention. Okay, what is it that I desire here? What was I focused on? What am I trying to do? What would my highest self do in the situation? 
So calm the body, direct the mind. Calm the body, direct the mind. Breathe, set intention, okay? Third, then, is perspective check. Do Byron Katie's process to me, the work is actually step three. Step one, breathe. Step two, set intention. Step three, reframe, reconsider, or do the work. Ask, is this thought true? Is this helpful? Is there another way to perceive this? How would my highest self, like, you know, you work through the thoughts that the emotion might have triggered or come from. Hmm. And so that's my, that's kind of like my, uh, my, my three-step framework, if that helps. I love it. It does. It, it's very helpful. Um, so in summary, give us a, uh, a little bit of um, uh, how the, how growth day is experienced and how it encompasses so many of the different uh, topics and areas that, that we've explored just over the last 60, 70 minutes. Yeah. I just think that at the end of the day, what Growth Day serves is the ability for you to have a touch point of personal development every day. And sometimes that touch point for you is your journal. Sometimes that touch point for you is you track and manage your habits. Sometimes that touch point is you watch either passively from a course or you watch live and chat with a coach. Sometimes it's you just want to share in the community and you want to finally belong to a community of like strivers who are positive and supportive and they're sharing their morning routines and their best habits and how they overcome roadblocks in their life. So whether you want the tools or the coaching community, Growth Day is just the app that helps kind of nudge you into that daily touch point of self-improvement. So the gate of self-awareness opens. And just like our conversation today, maybe, listen, will this conversation change everyone's life? No. Some people will be directed by it. Some people won't. Some people resonate with us. Some people won't. But just the mere act of you listening today started wiring your brain differently. And over a period of time, enough personal development wires you in a positive direction, teaches you to adapt in a positive direction, gives you the tools to act in more positive directions. So that's why I'm just a huge fan. I'm like, I just want everyone, whether it's growth day or something else, have a touch point every day of personal development. And if you call personal development self-awareness, if you call it self-care, if you call it high-performance habits, if you call it deliberate practice, if you call it you know your spiritual practice, whatever, I don't care. Just make sure it's daily. Because that, prog that, 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 that consistency always leads to great things over time that you could have never, ever anticipated. And that's how you, one day you wake up and your life isn't what you anticipated. It's in fact better. It's actually a dream that you never imagined. I live a dream that I never even had the vision as a young man to imagine. But by consistent efforts every day in personal development, I have this extraordinary life that I literally could not even, I didn't even have the capacity as a young dumb kid from Montana to ever dream of having the ability to reach tens of millions of people and earn tens of millions of dollars and have you know, unicorn businesses left and right. Like I, I literally did not see any of this. So stay on your path, keep learning, engage in personal development in some form every single day and great things will come. Yes, sir. The product is so often the process. Oh, I love it? that. That's it. Because all we have is the here and now. Yeah. 
And how are we going to spend this precious time in the here and now? And we yeah. could have a separate philosophical, philosophical oh, conversation That's about does the past. Or, yeah, right. Growth day to me is just, it's, it's the tool that finally gives you all your personal development in one place, but also in the here and now nudges you and reminds you every day and inspires you every day to do the work. And yeah. I think that's what's cool about our community is our, our, our community. You'll see as soon as you log in, we have, a, we have a 14 day free trial into growth day and um, they can get it at growthday.com forward slash commune. And what's cool about it, dude, is that you can just try, you'll see right away. Like, wow, these people are fired up, attend one of our sessions. You're like, oh God, wow, that's, that's great energy from all these different people. And wow, look at, this is the best personal development journal I've ever seen. Or this is, look at, I can track my habits that are actually researched back to lead to the outcomes we all want in our life. This is cool. And now it's you setting up notifications to remind yourself and just keep doing the work, man. I love that. Yeah. The product is a process. I learned something today. I love that. <laughs> amen. Amen. Well, I always learn something from you. Um, and uh, I really just value uh, your friendship. And, you know, and, and so thank you for being you once again. And to thank be you continued. for inspiring us all, man. You brought such good... So, I mean, such, I don't know, you brought such goodness to the world with commune and honestly, even before commune, everything you've done in your career to help people, you know, if you think about the, the, the people who actually did the work to bring today's modern mindfulness, uh, movement to the fore, you were certainly central in that, in this country. So I, I just, I cheer you on. I support you. And, um, I find you a, a brother on this path of life and I appreciate you, man. Thank you. Brandon Burchard, to be continued. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Brendan Burchard. For more information on the Growth Day app, go to growthday.com. And feel free to drop me a line anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. And if so inclined, make my mother proud by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.